There's virtually no one in the United States who's been completely untouched by the fight to contain coronavirus. The lockdown isn't official and by no means complete, but depending on where you live, schools and restaurants may have been closed, sports have been canceled, international travel has been curtailed, and the CDC says gatherings of more than 50 people shouldn't happen until at least mid-May. Dr. William Schaffner is professor of preventive medicine and infectious diseases at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center and a former official with the CDC. He says the effort will all be worth it if we can flatten the curve. Every epidemic has a start, a middle, and a finish. And if you can think of it a little bit like a pyramid going up, and what we'd like to do is push that pyramid down to flatten it and stretch it out And the reason for that is that if the pyramid is all scrunched together, then many, many sick people will come in for medical care all at once. If we can flatten it down and stretch it out, then the patients will come to the hospital and to the clinics in a more graduated fashion, and we can take much better care of them. What could we have been looking at if we didn't start doing things like closing schools and and banning large gatherings? Well, what could have happened is that we could have had a huge surge of coronavirus infections, and then among them, the people who are age 60 and older and people with underlying illnesses more likely to have the more severe infections, they would have gotten those severe infections, and they would have inundated the medical care system, our emergency rooms, doctors, offices, and hospital admissions. And I think we've held that off somewhat and dampened the curve. What's the key to doing that, to flattening the curve, as they say? Uh, Well, the concept is really pretty simple. Implementation is more elaborate. The concept is that this virus travels from one person to another, is transmitted because it's a respiratory virus. You breathe out if you have the infection, and the virus is in what the air that you exhale. So if someone is standing close to you, within three to six feet, they can inhale something of what you exhale, the virus goes with that, and then you're infected. And that's how it's spread very rapidly through a population. So the trick is to keep people separated. And to do that, first of all, you eliminate attendance at large events where there are hundreds, if not thousands of people that have prolonged face-to-face contact with you. And then distance ourselves from each other for this period of time to make it harder for the virus to get from one person to another. Social distancing applies to all of us, but if I were to put a special emphasis on subgroups in the population, it would clearly be people who are older than age 60 and anyone at any age who has an underlying chronic illness, such as diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, or who's immunocompromised. It's not that they are more likely to get this infection, but rather, if they acquire the infection, that's the population that's more likely to be seriously ill. Now, people hear the concept of social distancing and and don't really know what that means. Is it basically, even if I'm young and healthy, is it basically avoid everybody else if you can? 
that's kind of what it comes down to, recognizing that we can't do this perfectly. And you bring up young people. Young people are in a very important part of this equation. It's true. They are less likely to get severely ill uh, if they get infected. They can also be, even if they have only a mild infection, they can be vectors, transmitters of this virus to others who then may become very sick. We want them to participate in this just as much as older persons and persons with underlying illnesses. But people have no idea what is a risk and what is not. And and there are so many possible scenarios. Uh, Let me run through a couple here uh, and perhaps start at the high end. Obviously, if you're sick with the virus, you're probably going to be hospitalized. But if you're positive but not sick, you might be quarantined. Now, what does it mean to be quarantined? What can you do? What can't you do? Well, what it means is that you're supposed to stay behind the doors of your abode in your home. Well, you can walk around in the backyard, go out to the uh, out to the street and pick up the mail, but you're really supposed to stay by yourself and your family if you live with a family. Uh, they're supposed to find a room for you uh, so that you can stay largely by yourself and they are to keep their distance from you also. In fact, they may actually be counseled to wear those surgical masks to protect them from picking up your infection. Now, some of this requires a, a lot of cooperation. If, if I'm quarantined, I can't go to the grocery store, can I? I've got to have somebody pick up my groceries for me. Uh, that's exactly right. And for people who live by themselves and don't have family or friends who can do that for them, that's a bother. And so sometimes uh, local faith-based organizations help out or the public health department has got to figure out a way to do that. Let me take it one step down here. What about people who've been in contact with somebody who's positive, like, well, a spouse, as you've mentioned? They may have no idea if they are positive or not, but an important point here is that you can spread this with no symptoms at all. And we don't have enough tests for people to know if they are positive or not. What should people who are contacts be doing? Uh, Those people who are contacts of someone who's known to be positive likely will be advised to quarantine themselves also for 14 days. Now, increasingly, testing is becoming available, and we could test those folks and see if they're positive or negative. And if negative, they probably would be let out of quarantine. Uh, None of these things is perfect because they could be negative early on and turn positive later. So it's it's a struggle, however you do it. Let me take it one step farther down yet. Somebody who, let's say, works in the same office as somebody who has been discovered to be positive. What then? Well, how would we define that person as a contact? Is that someone who's had regular face-to-face prolonged contact with the person who's now defined as having COVID infection? If they're way across the room and they only wave to each other, figuratively speaking, and they never really have personal contact, that person probably would not be a, a, a contact. 
Let me ask about people who really have no concerns personally about whether they might be infected, but they're concerned that they might get infected if, for example, they go to the grocery store or if they take public transportation, things like that. How much concern does the regular man on the street have? Uh, some, and we are making recommendations to keep six feet away from people in order to reduce the risk. Remember, we can't do this perfectly, but by doing a whole series of things carefully, we reduce our individual risk substantially. Uh, those two things are somewhat different. Now, the supermarket. Uh, that's a concern, particularly if you go at peak hours. So go at off hours and there won't be as many people. And besides, virtually all of those contacts are quite fleeting and not high risk. So public transportation is more complicated, whether it's a subway or bus or a taxi ride, uh, because you are apt to encounter other people fairly close. Once again, if you can manage to travel during off hours, the congestion is less. Even if you have to travel, try to stay as far away from people as possible and take some wipes along with you so you can wipe off the strap or the pole that you're holding onto to make sure you don't fall over. So we're all trying to do the best we can. And on occasions in a large city, you might be able to bicycle to work or walk. A lot of people are asking, though, if we do all of these things, uh, we never go out to dinner, the kids are home from school, we're working at home. Do we really know how long this is likely to go mm -hmm. on? The CDC says no gatherings of 50 or more until mid-May. Is that what we're looking at or is it going to be more? Do we really have a way to predict? Remember, it's a new virus and we tell you new things about this new virus on at least a daily basis. So we're all going to have to hang in there, and we will make our collective decisions as time goes on. And that is a terrible uncertainty because it makes it very difficult to plan. May is mentioned because coronavirus is a respiratory virus, and like flu, if it behaves like flu, it should abate, it should reduce all by itself for mysterious reasons once the weather gets warmer. But this is a new coronavirus. The old coronaviruses, the ones that we're used to that cause common colds, they do abate, not as dramatically as flu, however. They kind of smolder along during the summer. So we don't know which textbook, as it were, this new virus has read yet. Is it going to be a lot like flu or is it going to be like the human coronaviruses uh, that we've experienced previously and abate, but still continue to smolder during the summer, only to wake up again, if you will, next winter? Uh, we'll have to see. Is it fair, do you think, to say that many of these procedures that we've developed over the last week and a half are going to last months rather than weeks? I think some of them may last longer than others, but there will come a time where there is great pressure to get many things back to at least near 
normal, perhaps in a modified form. I mean, people have to go to work in order to earn livings. Schools have to open in order to educate children. Uh, so the world keeps spinning, and there will be a great desire to come back to normal. And among all the decision makers who made the decision to institute these social distancing programs, as soon as you make that decision, the next question that comes up is, when can I turn them off or at least turn them down? We don't explicitly know the answer to that yet. You can find out more about Dr. William Schaffner and all of our guests on our website, RadioHealthJournal.org. I'm Reed Pence. Most primary care doctors expect to see more people with dementia over the next five years. But a new survey shows half of them don't think the medical profession is ready. Primary care physicians are on the front lines of dementia care, but nearly a third are never or only sometimes comfortable answering patient questions about it. Nearly two in five say they're never or only sometimes comfortable making a diagnosis. That's deeply concerning to Dr. Joanne Pike, Chief Program Officer of the Alzheimer's Association. We're heading toward a medical emergency when it comes to ensuring dementia care will be available for all who need it. It's critical that stakeholders work together to reverse the shortage of dementia care specialists and enhance dementia care education for primary care providers. The survey is part of the Alzheimer's Association 2020 Alzheimer's Disease Facts and Figures Report, which finds that, barring medical breakthroughs, the number of people with Alzheimer's dementia may nearly triple in the next 30 years. Find out more at ALZ.org. This report is sponsored by Daiichi Senkyo and AstraZeneca. An estimated 155,000 Americans are currently living with metastatic breast cancer, meaning it has spread from its original location to other parts of the body. There are different subtypes of metastatic breast cancer, which can be classified by the presence of certain proteins. In HER2-positive breast cancer, too much of the protein HER2 causes the cancer cells to grow and spread more aggressively. One in five breast cancers are HER2-positive. Despite treatment advances, the disease is considered incurable, with patients eventually progressing on treatment. More options have been urgently needed. Now there's a new treatment available. The FDA recently granted accelerated approval of a HER2-directed antibody drug conjugate for the treatment of adult patients who have previously received anti-HER2-based regimens. This new medicine is a part of a class of targeted therapies called antibody drug conjugates or ADCs, that are designed to selectively deliver chemotherapy inside cancer cells. Ion E. Krop, MD, PhD, Associate Chief of Breast Oncology, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, commented. With this approval, we now have a drug available that results in benefit in the majority of patients in whom other drugs had stopped working. Talk to your doctor about new treatment options and associated safety risks. And that's Radio Health Journal for this week. Radio Health Journal is a production of MediaTracks Communications. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more. And check Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify for a library of past programs. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and information about our guests at RadioHealthJournal.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Radio Health Journal. <laughs>